I used to spend a lot of time on the main coast. I was married to a yachtsman, my second husband this was, a dealer in risky securities, who was about to go bust any day, but didn't know it at the time, and he had a lovely catch, and so we used to go up there and cruise the coast. We sat on deck at night, and the sky was beautifully clear, and sometimes we saw a kind of halo moving across the star fields, and we used to speculate, what is this? Airliners making the North Atlantic run? Or UFOs, you know? That was a popular subject even then. A luminous disk slowly crossing, hazy and very high, and I thought it was too high for an airline. And I knew that strategic bombers flew at something like 55,000 feet. And I decided this is the refracted light from an object way up there. This is the circular form it takes. Because I wanted to believe that's what we were seeing, B-52s. War scared me all right, but those lights, I have to tell you, those lights were a complex sensation. Those planes on permanent alert, ever-present, you know, sweeping the Soviet borders, and I remember sitting out there, rocking lightly at anchor in some deserted cove, and feeling a sense of awe, a child's sleepy feeling of mystery and danger and beauty. I think that is power. I think if you maintain a force in the world that comes into people's sleep, you are exercising a meaningful power. Because I respect power, now that power is in shatters or tatters, and now those Soviet borders don't even exist in the same way. I think we understand, we look back, we see ourselves more clearly, and them as well. Power meant something 30 or 40 years ago. It was stable, it was focused, it was a tangible thing. It was greatness, danger, terror, all those things. And it held us together, the Soviets and us maybe held the world together. You could measure things. You could measure hope and you could measure destruction. Not that I want to bring it back, it's gone good riddance. But the fact is, many things that were anchored to the balance of power and the balance of terror seem to be undone, unstuck. Things have no limits now. Money has no limits. I don't understand money anymore. Money is undone. Violence is undone. Violence is easier now. It's uprooted, out of control. It has no measure anymore. It has no level of values. I don't want to disarm the world, or I do want to disarm the world, but I want it to be done warily and realistically and in the full knowledge of what we're giving up. We gave up the yacht. That's the first thing we gave up. Now I've got these airplanes down out of the sky, and I've walked and stooped and crawled from the cockpit to the tail, gun armament, and I've seen them in every kind of light, and I've thought about the weapons they carried and the men who accompanied the weapons, and it's awful to think about. But the bombs were not released, you see. The missiles remained in the underwing carriage, unfired. The men came back, and the targets were not destroyed, you see. We all tried to think about war, but I'm not sure we knew how to do this. The poets wrote long poems with dirty words, and that's about as close as we came, actually, to a thoughtful response. Because they had brought something into the world that outimagined the mind. They didn't even know what to call the early bomb, the thing or the gadget or something. And Oppenheimer said, it's merd. 
I will use the French, J. Robert Oppenheimer. It is merde. He meant something that eludes naming is automatically relegated, he is saying, to the status of shit. You can't name it. It's too big or evil or outside your experience. It is also shit because it is garbage. It's waste material. But I'm making a whole big Megillah out of this. What I really wanted to get at is the ordinary thing. The ordinary life behind the thing. Because that's the heart and soul of what we're doing here. Hello and welcome, I'm Douglas Bowles, and I was driving in a Lexus through a rustling wind, listening to 42 Minutes, a podcast about meaning from SyncBook Radio and distributed by thesyncbook.com. You can find our archives at 42minutes.com, and you can reach us by sending a message to mail at 42minutes.com. You can also follow our tweets at Sync42 and at SyncBook. It's November 8th, 2019, and tonight for the fall installment of the 42 Minutes Seasonal Book Club, the book club regulars are considering Don DeLillo's 1997 masterwork, Underworld. A finalist for the National Book Award, Underworld is about the second half of the 20th century in America and about two people, an artist and an executive, whose lives intertwine in New York in the 50s and again in the 90s. With cameo appearances by Lenny Bruce, J. Edgar Hoover, Bobby Thompson, Frank Sinatra, Jackie Gleason, and Toots Shore. This is DeLillo's most affecting novel, a dazzling phosphorescent work of art. He speaks in your voice, American, and there's a shine in his eye that's halfway hopeful. Hello, everyone. How is everyone doing tonight? Great. Yeah, good. (laughs) Wonderful, wonderful. Great. Very good. Well, I was hoping that Lacey would would have uh, made it because I wanted to get her take before we we dove into this. But maybe we'll start with Usenor. Early on, you said it reminded you of uh, the Pension book that the book club did, the um, Crying of Lot Forty Nine. Did you feel that way at the end? Um, uh, not as much at the end, but. Um... I sort of saw it as a as a kind of long drawn out version of of the crying of Lot Forty Nine in a way, with a lot of a lot of different themes. I I just found um, I was looking on the internet after I was thinking that I was I was think, I was wondering if anybody else made that connection and I uh, I found a, a site that was talking about it and I just found it again now and it says. Uh, just this one article, it says, this little part, it says, uh, the importance of Pynchon's novel to DeLillo is even more evident in Underworld's treatment of waste. In Lot 49, af- after asking Oedipo if we are an underground, Fallopian adds, or maybe we are using waste, which is W-A-S-T-E, only it's a secret. Giving DeLillo a blueprint for part of Underworld, Pynchon repeatedly describes waste as an underground of the imbalanced, and a whole underworld of suicides who failed. Reviewing the testing of atomic bombs, J. Edgar Hoover wonders early in Delilah's novel in free and direct speech, what secret history are we writing? Hmm. Don Delilo, Underworld. Uh, towards the end of Underworld, the secret history of atomic testing is relentlessly connected to waste and a series of undergrounds. So, yeah, just especially that connection of, uh, of waste. And then... And then also the, the just the the massive amounts of interconnections in the novel and how it's all sort of 
connected by secret histories and different systems of paranoia. And I'm just reading in that, uh, um, that uh, letter by uh, David Foster Wallace to Delilah, and he calls it uh, the scrotum tightening connections. <laughs> <laughs> well, so in a, in a Rolling Stone interview, Delilo had this quote, it is my sense that we live in a, a kind of circular or near circular system and that there are an increasing number of rings which keep intersecting at some point whether you're using a plastic card to draw money of an account or that or thinking about the movement of planetary bodies i mean these systems all seem to interact the secret within systems i i suppose these are the things that have informed my work and so the really fascinating thing to me as i moved through this book was and I think he did this on purpose, is the juxtapositions of how it went from one scene to the next scene and how those two... I mean, so like that was the the starting point was this this um, front page of the New York Times with the, uh, right. the the baseball home run and the nuclear test in, in the Soviet Union. So... It, it's just so bizarre because I mean, really, this on some level is is a like a synchronicity book. Yeah. Yeah. He said he, he said he would. Um, I don't know if you if you guys watched that. There was a, uh, a YouTube video, like a lecture that he gave, and he said when he came across that synchronicity, he it blew him away. Like that was the start of the whole thing. Um, but the, it it gets so huge, right? Because. Uh, um, they're talking like in a, in a way that's the uh, it's it's kind of like the formal start or the public start of the Cold War. Like there was incidents before that, right? And there was there was one bomb that that the uh, the Russians detonated before that one, but that was that bomb proved that they could do it again. You know, it proved that they they had the bomb. Basically, it wasn't just a one-off thing. Um, so it proved that they were a, a rival power and then so at the same time then you have uh this sort of the people's history of of the shot heard around the world and there's a dialogue uh within the book with uh um with uh with shay and his two co-workers and they're talking about how oh and, and then that uh, then that woman from the bbc and they're talking about how at that time everybody ran outside, and that was such a big thing for the '50s because uh, afterwards in the '50s everybody became so scared and stayed inside the entire decade. Um, but that was an event that everybody stayed outside. So, so in a way, it was a, it was a it was kind of an opposite move to what happened later with with Kennedy, like uh, Kennedy when he was shot. People always talk about where were you when Kennedy was shot, and it was the same thing with this uh, with this baseball game. But the difference is that with Kennedy, everybody was at home again, shut in and, and watching it on their TVs, and whereas this one was everybody was outside. So you have, uh, um, and that that of course reminds me of uh, 9/11, right? The response to 9/11, everybody shut inside, listening to watching their TV or whatever. 
Well, there's yeah. so much uncanniness. My my short take on the book is this is the, this is the 9/11 novel written what yeah. four years before 9/11. I mean, it is so uncanny how accurately this describes the world we're in, the world of 9/11. The shot heard, the real shot heard around the world would be 9/11 in my estimation because no one remembers what that base you know in terms of a global consciousness. You know, no one knows about the Giants and the Dodgers 70 years or however many years after the fact. But 9/11 will likely live on. Who knows? I mean, maybe in perpetuity. I mean, we can't predict that. But so I, I think that to me is really kind of the, some of the meta themes of the book are about this idea of consciousness, how the consciousness, collective consciousness, informs reality. Um, you know, a, a, against the backdrop of a, an event, a global event like 9/11, and just to say, and I'll, I'll, I'll get out here, uh, uh, get out of get out of this little rant, but. Uh, not rampant, just a little take. The end of the book, uh, my take on the end is that there's this beautiful meditation on this crowd around a billboard where these artists depict a girl who had just been raped. And that rape scene is extremely tough to read and to listen to. I mean, wow, it's quite graphic. But I, I think it's that is the rape of America by the perpetrators of 9-11. And that, and that we're kind of now, I mean, as a metaphor, um, and of course he couldn't have intended that, but you know, we, we kind of, you have this kind of new age where after the fact people are just transfixed by the images. The other part of the book where you watch those images over and over again of the highway shooter, I thought that was really, um, you know, mm-hmm. accurate in terms of depicting what we did after nine 11 is we kind of were mesmerized by the screen and it was just over again and over again, or even there's a Pruder film back into the left, yeah. back into the left, you know, and they watched the Pruder film, that scene in the book where it's like one of the first viewings because it was released about 10 years after there's some, some copies were released into the public and this was like a new york art party where they watched the zapruder film cut up by these visual artists i mean that was a tripped out thing so yeah. i mean there's so much here i mean there was one other thing i think i wanted to say um no i'll just leave it there for now but that's kind of my meta take on it is that this is about 9-11 the venom 9-11 this kind of global shot that changes everything um what about you alex Oh, I would completely agree with all that. Uh, I was it can provide some details, which like supporting all the parallels, which would just came to mind while you were talking, is that the whole idea, this use of orange juice as a sort of symbol, <laughs> and the fact that I'm sure we all remember the the Super Tramp. Album yeah, cover, that's which what I immediately thought of. Yeah. World Trade Center. She's holding. She's it's in a in a plane. She the wait the air stewardess is holding a tray of orange juice, which overlaps with the twin towers and uh, uh, nine uh, the the whatever the letters reversed. It's you know nine eleven. Anyway, we all know about that. So this orange juice thing, and I wish I uh, could remember uh, Mark O'Claire's rant about orange juice, but that's sort of a major thing. The other thing is the is the um, imagery during the game of uh, the, all the paper uh, flying down, uh, people tearing up their brochures and magazines, anything they could find that they were just tearing up and throwing into the air as, oh, yeah. in celebration. And and that's sort of what happened in, in on 9/11 when the towers are destroyed and for some reason all this paper is left uh, dustified, I should say, and the 
this paper floating through the streets and um and there's, gosh there's a lot to talk yeah, about there's there's also um uh there's one one scene uh where uh nick shea is he's he's out west like in uh near los angeles or something and he has a vision of these office towers crashing down um uh yeah that's one and then uh there's another there's another scene where one of the characters i can't remember um sees uh footage of the challenger explosion and yeah. that reads as if it it is 9/11 like you can almost if if you took that out of context and just read it as as the towers collapsing it almost sounds like 9/11 like a clear blue sky he's talking about and then and then there's an, the other part uh right before the Zapruder um film scene that's in 1974 and that whole uh section is introduced by watching the, the the towers being built you know it directly comes right before the uh, the kennedy stuff so yeah yeah me too i was i was blown away by the connections with, with 9-11 and, and then of course the uh, the cover with the with the bird as the, right. the jet plane right there's a quote direct quote from the last pages of the book jet fuel keeps the moment whole fellowship of deep belief i mean so there's this obsession with jet fuel i mean by name you know which is also part of the 9-11 idea the jet fuel bought the towers down i mean i just want to run through quickly some of the other ones there's art students like a whole network of kind of clandestine art students there's painting planes in the desert of course we know there's the wayne madsen theory that the planes were in actually that same desert that were constructed and painted to look like planes. I mean, I'm not saying any of that's true. I'm just saying even in terms of the conspiracy theories around 9-11, there's a bunch of synchronicities, like direct synchronicities in the, in the book. And then the other third one is that it's waste traders and the, and the boat is taking waste from the New York area. Right, yeah, and tra yeah. and traveling around with this clan this kind yeah. of secret waste and that's one of the big conspiracy theories about 9/11 is that they you know the the steel was cut up and then sent to sent on boats to, to Asia and they talk so, about I mean, that mountain that mountain of waste too like that pyramid of waste just outside of New York right yeah. fresh kills landfill yeah, yeah. yeah fresh. fresh kills yep yeah. i want to br briefly mention that um it's this is not the first time that DeLillo has written stuff that seems to prefigure 9-11 because in the one book called, I think it's Players, um, I read it a while ago and I don't remember the details, but I remember there being a paragraph which is literally just like talking about, and this is pre-'93 pre bombing too, So, but he's talking about the World Trade Centers and, I mean, he's literally talking about the World Trade Centers, planes, terrorists, um, just a weird scrotum tightening connection, like he, like uh, DFW said, that um, prefigures Underworld. So there's a there's just a sense that the guys just tapped into, you know, the whatever you want to call it, the live stream. And I think there's even a bit at the towards the end of Underworld where he talks about an event, sort of reaching back through time, uh, mm. like uh, just casting a shadow in time and that the information is traveling backwards rather than forwards, mm -hmm. which really just like, just like a straight out of a sync video or whatever. <laughs> yeah. yeah th there's even a passage 
directly comparing the big mountain and fresh kills with the uh, with the twin towers. <laughs> yeah. A, yeah, there's also a dollar folding dollar bill scene where the street preacher folds a bill, and I thought <laughs> yeah. immediately of the towers on the folded dollar bill. There's a an, another quote that says the air has a stink of smoky fuel. I think this is again towards that the end of the book when all the people are in the streets. Um, you know, and there's one other one, the Esmeralda, the girl that's raped is thrown off the building. I thought about the, the, mm. uh, 9-11, you know, people jumping from the building. You have this strange, um, Frank F. French building, mm. which of course is 666. And there's some, these med there's meditations on that tower. Um, there was one other fighter jets. He talks about it in one scene where these fighter jets are flying in Manhattan um, I thought about how fighter jets were scrambled. A lot of the 9-11 stories I've heard were about people thinking about those fighter jets. And there was one other thing about, um, there's a quote in the movie where I, um, someone says, what are we going to do? Go downtown? Are we going to, are we going to, should we walk downtown while downtown is basically, um, you know, unfit to, to traverse, um, let me see here. Um, go ahead. I'll look this one up. This one I thought was really uncannily accurate in terms of people that day on 9-11 were walking away from downtown. Oh, you're, when the, the when the lights were out? And Are you talking about that? Yes, scene? exactly. Yeah. When the lights oh. were out. All the lights were out in Manhattan. And that's to say Manhattan shut down on 9-11. And people were actually walking. Yeah. You know? Um, and so it's just a really, I mean, it's this is why I said it's, it's not just one or two things. It's almost even, the whole um, feel of the novel. Exactly, yeah. Even it's when, like uh, yeah, go ahead. oh, sorry, yeah, I, I was just saying, yeah, even when uh, when J. Edgar Hoover talks about, uh, like he's talking about being at the game, and then he finds out about the uh, the bomb, and then it immediately takes him back to Pearl Harbor, when when he was also in New York City, you know, nine eleven being the new Pearl Harbor, right? Um, like, well, that's like, uh, and really, I mean, the shot heard around the world is it's the american revolution it's the revolution uh, first yeah. and foremost so this whole story is like 9-11 but it's it's also like the the history of the united states and uh of course it's it's masonic founders i think he even talks about that uh yeah. sort of realm of of paranoia and uh uh well you know it, uh, sorry a lot of these things that we're talking about are based in history you know the new york blackout the challenger explosion the baseball game and so it's there's a sense that that all of history is really tied up in this not just 9-11 even though 9-11 is like a uh, the, maybe the the ultimate expression well so of, i knew that our conversation was going to totally go off the rails like this because there's just no way it can't <laughs> and that's yeah. why I wanted to start with you, Lacey, if you're there. I think you are, because you were the first one through. The the most amazing thing about this is <clears throat> at the same time, there's all this this synchronicity and stuff and, like, freighted meaning. At, at the same time, it's also, like, this beautiful piece of literature, and you can just get lost lost in any of these vignettes, you know, like, completely embedded. What what did you make of this book, Lacey? Yeah, I thought it was beautiful, and I was happy to do my commutes because I just listened to it 
and got lost in it. Thankfully, I knew where I was going, so I didn't literally get lost. But um, it was, I just, the pictures he painted and the the interactions between the characters really just made you feel like you were a part of it, part of the story and following along and going, you know, it kind of, at times, I'd have to go back and, like, find the transition again because listening to it I'd kind of like lose the the flow of when it would switch sometimes but um then I get back into it um and I loved the you know the threads of art and how all the different aspects from you know the graffiti and that was really cool on the bus on the subway buses and to the giant planes and and more like high end and you just had the different expression of art you know to remember the children and um yeah i just i i thought it was beautiful it was a wonderful book but and yeah and i I'm going to listen to the off the rail parts, but I, I don't know how much I'm going to have to add to that. <laughs> what, um, so you might not have been on, but um, Zenora was saying that it reminded him in some ways of the crying of lot 49. I think it mm. kind of reminded me of more of infinite jest, especially the stru structure. Yeah. Me, me too. Yeah, I definitely felt like ended it, and I was like, "Well, I probably could start this again." And well, I did. And like, keep you know, keep going. And and is it was that the end, or you know, I don't know. Well, because right, um, so it, I mean, <clears throat> so after after the beginning, which is this you know really elaborate uh, description of the baseball game and how the ball comes into existence, which kind of animates the whole book. Um, then, you know, at the very beginning, it's the end, because it's the 90s, and he's looking back on his life and thinking back about all these moments. And you really don't have the context to understand these meditations, even though it's descriptive enough to get a sense of what he's thinking about, so that when you do get to the 50s and you experience those experiences the the stuff in the 90s is just so much more impactful and uh meaningful like i you know you i think everyone loves the beginning of this but that that first section where he's driving the lexus in the desert going to meet clara you know it just really was something it's like wow this is this is as good as writing gets right here mhm mm can I just quickly say a point on this narrative structure idea, not off the rails. Um, it's just that I was so taken by the end of the novel because in one way, the structure is it's the narrative arc is that we just, this, this, this disclosure of who he killed, right? That's the basic narrative. You can, one way to look at it, a guy kills someone changes his whole life. And, and this, the book is written about, uh, it, it, where that's meted out to the reader. And so, and I remember those, those scenes toward the end, I was like, shit, is this where he's going to kill someone? Is this where he's going to kill someone? <laughs> yeah. And when he, and that's the shot heard around the world for his personal narrative, right? He kills that dude on accident. And so that's just another part of the narrative structure, setting aside all the, the other stuff that I wanted to throw out, throw out there. I loved, I love that part of it. I mean, I was really riveted as a reader. Yeah, that part, Jeff, I felt I felt the same, like, oh, this is when we're going to find out who it is. 
And then I always was waiting to hear more about Cotter. Like, I feel like most of the characters, they weaved in and out of each other's stories. But, but you, I never, like, heard about Cotter anymore. And I, I don't think I missed it. But if I did, I would really love to know if I missed it. Because, like, do we know what happens to him? Well, there's a section where he... I think it there's a section where he's a bomber on the plane. Yeah. Right? Oh, you know, really? He grows up and um, he's he's one of the bombers. Uh, oh, you're right. Yeah. My, but that's like all you get as far as I think his you know the immediate aftermath of his dad taking the ball, uh, or or is he the one who's like in that section where he's talking about how he he lost it like he thinks that he lost it. Um, I don't know if uh, my memory isn't great, but I feel like he 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 kind of expresses sideways uh, how he regrets the fact that he lost that ball, which kind of led me to think that his dad sort of gaslighted him and made him think that he lost it, even though his dad just just no, it. you know what? I think you confused something. Now that okay, I'm thinking about it. well, because so Manx. So the interesting thing, like you've got your twin towers, um, but everything is mirrored in this book. And so like you have like the story at the beginning is how the the ball came into their possession. And the story at the end is how the ball leaves their possession. But mm. it's also like that's the key element where the, you've got the the basically the conspiracy guy who's tracing the the ball and he's doing all this research and looking at pixels and doing all this crazy like paranoid research basically to find out the the trajectory of the ball um but so manx goes and there's the kid who's sleeping in the street right you know manx drags the garbage can over with his hands and his hands are get burnt and then uh the kid is you know asleep in the sleeping bag and i think that's the the one that was in the bomber oh Ah, so the kid in the bag is the one who ended up with the ball the son yeah so his father and he was not that into the Chucky you mean yeah Chucky so it's more like when the ball leaves the possession the character is basically their story is over in this narrative yeah yeah. Yeah, Chucky's the one who said he he lost it yeah yeah Um, okay but it, okay, so here's a here's a part that I didn't really understand. Like, uh, so from Chucky, the ball goes where, and then it it gets connected with the guy who gets shot by the the highway, the Texas highway killer. Um, but that part I I, I was not clear about. I, I, do you guys know? Uh, do you know what I mean? I think part of that is it. Highway killer the, was that little boy. No. What, say again, Lacey? Was I don't know. I kind of thought that the 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 killer was the was the little boy. That that like his dad that his dad bought the ball was Chucky. Uh, no, he uh, not that I know. Like he, no, uh, I forget the guy's name. Like it it says uh, the guy's name is Richard something. Oh. There's, a, there's a whole section on on him. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Um, hmm. So. 
but the there's a there's a scene where the guy who at, at some point there's a memorabilia trader who says I've traced back the chain of custody all the way back until there's a final link around the day of the game, and so yeah, I that's... took that to mean I took that to mean that it was really the father of Cotter into the hands of that family was the one that is really the only missing link in terms of what can be confirmed. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. But, and I love yeah, that so, scene so, by the way. Yeah. yeah. So it goes from Cotter or it goes from uh, the other guy at the game actually who had it before Cotter and then it goes and then Cotter and then Manx and then Manx sells it to uh, Charles Wainwright who gives it to his son, Chucky and then from there, what happens in between Chucky and Nick Shea? Like, like eventually it ends up Marvin Lundy gets it. Like he's that he's he's the weird uh, baseball conspiracy guy. But then in between Chucky and Marvin Lundy, there's this whole step about the highway killer, which I don't I, I didn't really catch. I don't know. Um, well, I thought the guys... highway killer was interesting in that I thought, like. It, it it just didn't seem like that plot point didn't go anywhere, you know. Well, that's the thing. Like it does, it does connect because there's a there's the one thing in there where it talks about how how uh, he happened to kill uh, one of the possessors of the ball, um, and and that that was what was recorded by that that girl who that that little girl who was playing with her. Uh, her uh, video camera in the back seat or whatever, right? That was the famous footage that kept getting repeated. But um, somehow, like uh, Marvin Lundy talks about this guy. Uh, uh, I forget the guy's name. Like somebody, um, Jackson or, or Judson or something like that. Like he's trying to piece together who these guys are. Um, so I'm not really clear where where he gets the ball. Um, remember, he was waiting for the ship um, that uh, Lund that um, Chucky was supposed to be on. Yeah, that that garbage ship or something. That that um, that's not clear in my mind either. If that was the same ship that they're talking about later or or what. But there was a ship that. Uh, um, Marvin Lundy and then his wife were waiting for, and it turns out that Chucky was supposed to be on the ship, um, and he didn't meet up with Chucky, but he he saw the ship, yeah, and he smelt the ship. Like, he's, <laughs> then, he, then he's got then he's got that whole scene about him him having terrible diarrhea all through <laughs> Eastern Europe or whatever. Like, <laughs> but. Uh, yeah, so I, I I don't know. There's some things that I'm not really sure about. Did you, did you guys catch that? Like, what what is the what is the final link? My sense of it, which and I have no answer for you there, but unless somebody else does, they can interrupt me. But uh, I kind of feel like you know it's unknowable in a way. Like, <laughs> like that's so funny because I'm thinking is... about Infinite Jest and like with Infinite sure. Jest, there is the missing middle. But I think that there's no missing, like it's only a hidden middle, a hidden middle here. And yeah, it, that's I, I kind of think that yeah, I, it's that just something are, that I missed in there my are reading connections, or something. Like right, that if you if you wanted to drill down, you could get there. Well, well I remind like Marvin Lundy uh, did it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> did it all. And he, I'm thinking. I, one of my notes around this was. 
sorry to just say quickly, uh, Philip, Philip K. Dick, the man in the high castle, there's this whole like meditation on historicity of objects and what is the real object and what isn't the real yeah. object. And I, mm. I do think that Delillo's going there intentionally. You know, I don't, yeah. I don't think yeah. that, that, I think that's part of the, for sure, for sure. Yeah. So. What we're entering into. Alex, were you saying that, uh, you read some analysis where they were saying that you, you, you it is a missing middle? No, I, that's just my gut feeling. Um, it, it could be like a. I mean, missing, but like you can maybe maybe you, with infinite jest, it's it's hidden, but it's it's inferred like it's that there, it connects, but, but I don't. It doesn't. You can connect. kind of imagine it and complete it in your mind, but you never know for certain. Yeah, it's always open in infinite jest. Yeah, but here here the the question should be answerable, right? Like it, so somehow Lundy gets the ball, and then. How how does he get it? Like, what's the um, what's the connection? Um, Lundy really reminded me of the uh, DFW um, Mash character, who's oh yeah, yeah 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 was yeah, that an Infinite Jest or a different short story? I that's forget. an Infinite Jest. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm just gonna say part of the plot to me is this theme of like, does he have the real ball? You know, and and, yeah. and it still gives him hope, right? That it that it is, or maybe it isn't, and he kind of goes through the idea of whether or not it is. So I kind of like that in the in the book. You know, we can still have this emotional attachment without the certainty. You know, and and to go back to the conspiracy theory idea, um, you know, this is kind of like what conspiracy theorists do. There's it, it, everything points to it. There's a lot of dots. They even use this dot connecting um, metaphor. Yeah, Delillo does, but th there's always a few dots you just can't connect, and that's mm -hmm. why it remains in the realm of theory, right? And not and not reality. The one other thing I want to say about that is sanity. What do you guys think about this? The sun becomes an online conspiracy theorist basically i mean where he's or i don't know about conspiracy theorists but he's like he's on the dark web the sun yeah. becomes a, a member of the dark web and i think that's sort of like the sync community or even other conspiracy you know there's this there's this element of that i feel like the novel basically is a is, a, is describing the birth of the new age yeah, and it's a beautiful meditation that now we're in the digital age. Identity has been fractured. He even says genderless, all gender programmed out in cyberspace. That's a direct quote at the end. And so I, I do think that there's some real insight that DeLillo has into what kind of world we've entered into. Um, and it's surprising, 97, that means he was writing this in, what, 95, 96. That was really early in, in our the humanities access to the net so he was so perceptive so early uh, i think that's that's really a, a, i mean it's just a, a mark of genius that son really reminded me of pension's bleeding edge like mm. i mean uh, zenora did you think of that at any at all in that yeah I, I think this novel really bleeds into bleeding edge you know <laughs> so, <laughs> I, I i think uh yeah Bleeding Edge sort of continues on in, in a can way. Can you, can you, can you not, since, okay, all right. So 9-11 um, happens in New York. Uh, it's physically marked in the landscape. Uh, perhaps like superposition transfers it forward and backward in time. Like, can you not write a, a descriptive novel that, that, describes new york and not make it about and not have elements that prefigure or that describe 9 11 like 
because it's just in the landscape. It's it, it, because it's just dating, you know, like, I mean, yeah, yeah. Ground zero, jet fuel. New, I mean, it just seems like there's some pretty accurate markers there. I mean, I, I hear your point, Dennis, but I do think yeah. there's it's another, like, it's, another level It's here. interesting. Uh, this part, just um, can I read this one quote? This is a part uh, with Marvin uh, Lundy and his, and his wife, Eleanor, at the Conspiracy Theory Cafe. And this really, well, I'll just read it. It really uh, sort of clarifies his view on it. It's like there was a, there was a place called the Conspiracy Theory Cafe Shelves filled with books, film reels, sound tapes, official government reports, and blue binders. Eleanor wa wanted to have a coffee and browse, but Marvin waved the place off. A series of sterile exercises. He believed the wellsprings were deeper and less detectable, deeper and shallower both. Look at billboards and matchbooks, trademarks on products, birthmarks on bodies. Look at the behavior of your pets. <laughs> something staring you straight in the face you know like he he's a he's a synchromistic you know like he's gone, like, like he's uh he's he's gone he's gone beyond straight conspiracy theorizing you know that was 42 minutes thank you for sharing it with us you've been listening to the fall book club on 42 minutes production of sick book radio on the sickbook.com Check out other shows at thesyncbook.com. For more information about The Syncbook, our guests, check out past shows or subscribe to the podcast via iTunes. Please be sure and visit our website at thesyncbook.com. If you like this, check out others. It's currently all the Syncbook radio archives. They're free. We also feature a great search engine to help you find what you need. All this and more can be found at thesyncbook.com. Thanks so much. And I didn't buy the object for the glory and drama attached to it. It's not about Thompson hitting the homer. It's about Bronca making the pitch. It's all about losing. It's about the mystery of bad luck. The mystery of loss. I don't know. I, I keep saying I don't know and I don't. But it's the only thing in my life I absolutely had to own. Time goes by so slowly And time can do so much Or you still mine I need your love I need your love God, speed your love to me. Lonely rivers flow to the sea, to the sea, to the open arms of the sea. Lonely rivers sigh, wait for me, wait for me. I'll be coming home, wait for me. Oh, my love, my darling.
good for your touch A long, lonely time Time goes by so slowly And time can do so much Are you still mine? I need your love. I need your love. God, uh, speed your love to.